everybody and welcome to Justice for Society in conversation where we talk about important social issues to raise awareness. I'm Jasmine and I'm the host of this podcast and today we're here with a special guest, Kayla Morgan, here to talk with us and to us about BIPOC youth and mental health. Would you like to tell us a bit about yourself? I'm Kayla Morgan and I'm the owner of Resilient Roots Wellness, which is a platform that I created for people who've experienced trauma with aging out of the foster care or experiencing microaggressions in the workplace. And I provide yoga that is restorative, slow, and in my class, we practice positive I am affirmations like I'm brave, I'm strong, I'm worthy to combat any negative self-talk that might be on loop in the brain during stressful situations. Wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that. And of course, thank you for guesting on our podcast. So let's get started. Um, I guess one of the topics that I wanted to cover is racism and its effects on BIPOC youth and their mental health. Um, I know that as a person of color myself, even though I personally don't experience blatant racism, it still affects me and has affected me greatly. And I think that says a lot about the impact of racism. And I think that inherently talking about BIPOC youth and their mental health is not complete without talk of racism, as unfortunate as that is, um, and is something important to bring up that I think honestly hasn't been talked about a whole lot. I think there's that people of color have this overlaying, I don't even know what to call it, but you have to be strong, right? You always have this armor on and you always have to show up and you always have to be strong and you unfortunately don't have time, the time that it takes to actually focus on mental health, right? Or to help somebody else on their journey with mental health. And you kind of like dissociate and you're just like, just get to it, just get over it, just get over it, just suppress it, just suppress it, and just keep going, right? It's kind of like that living in survival mode, right? So, yeah, unfortunately, people of color don't have the time or the resources to really focus on it until it's too late. Yeah, without a doubt. It's just racism is so normalized, you know? It's like the armor that you aren't aware of until something happens, and then you're like, wait, Uh, this isn't normal for other people and then everything comes crashing and then you have to disassociate whether that be for your own sake or because society tells you to and then like you said it's complete survival mode if you add on the fact that oftentimes because communities have been historically redlined so red light communities and to preface that are still standing today BIPOC individuals youth included just don't have the time or the resources to focus on it until again like you said it's really just too late but I know in our conversations leading up to this, you talked about implementing policies and procedures on a national level with the NCTSN and Northwestern University. So with your experience, what have you noticed in terms of that alongside um, BIPOC youth and mental health? They actually um, just supported a a project. um, Well, I supported a project that they were doing around um, bringing diversity and inclusion into um, supporting people of color and youth in color in foster care. Um, It's been easier than other systems that I've tried to integrate in. Um, The NCTSN and Northwestern have a lot of people on the team that are already trauma-informed and already open, aware, and willing to sit in the discomfort of talking about um, equity, diversity, and inclusion. So that it's been easy. It's been good. 
Mm, for sure. I'm really glad to hear uh, that they had fairly easy programs to integrate in. But I think you also referenced how a lot of other programs aren't as easy to integrate in. And I think that's a really important uh, point to bring up as well. Um, because a lot of the time, mental health programs just aren't as accommodating for BIPOC individuals, especially youth. And, you know, it really does have a large effect on individuals. So if you think about the history of people of color and medical staff, doctors, right? They used to use us as experimental tools. And there was even one doctor who wrote in a book. And back then, if it was written in a book, it was true. You know, just like now, if it's on the internet, it's true, even though it's not. <laughs> but we believe it until we don't, I guess. Um, that people of color had higher tolerance of pain or didn't feel pain. Um, and that's why slaves would die in the field because they would just work them and really until they couldn't anymore, right? Um, so that narrative gets passed down for generation and generation of doctors, right? Um, unless there's an intervenience of diversity, inclusion, anti-racism, until they hear about this doctor and it's not gonna come from white doctors, it's just, it's gonna, it has to come from a person of color because the person of color is aware that that is just not true, right? Um, yeah, so I've been in, I don't feel comfortable going to doctors still. I've still yet to find a doctor that I haven't felt small in front of, right? Oh, definitely. And that added to um, the mentality is also just a lack of care for BIPOC clients in this particular conversation, BIPOC youth that are struggling with mental health, which really creates a very uncomfortable environment that obviously just isn't very right. Um, there's also the fact that a lot of BIPOC individuals are put into a box, and that really translates to the mental health aspect as well. Or they question you more. Mm. They... They question you to the point of you start questioning yourself or they say really rude things like, or they think that you just want medication, right? Like you're just saying these things so you can get a drug. So that is a narrative that happens in that, that, that um, doctor versus client relationship. And that will really make you have like some, that could be traumatizing. Right. If you're if you thought this was a safe place to go to get help for your mental illness and now this person is accusing you of being under the influence or wanting to be under the influence, that's that's not OK. That's not safe. That trust is broken and you're not going to want to go back. Yeah. And to be on the receiving end of that stick is really just it really does cause a lot of emotional grief and I think that says a lot because not only is your mental health so largely affected by racism, racism also affects your treatment for your mental health struggles which like at that point as an individual how do you even react you know and that's really only a small part of microaggressions towards BIPOC individuals that really just build up over time because like microaggressions build up you know and it's this long never-ending series of small hypothetically minuscule things that just consistently tear you down whether that be your identity your confidence your self-esteem and I mean even then a lot of non-BIPOC doctors just don't understand the depth and how deeply rooted racism and these issues affect their clients so being BIPOC you struggling with their mental health um 
even if they have found a non-BIPOC doctor that's willing to give them the treatment they deserve, even like sometimes they just don't understand the depth of it. And that's every bit as important as the standard treatment as well. So many, so many, 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 many factors. And you're right. It builds up over time because a lot of the times when someone does a, a microaggression, like you take a long time to process it, right? Especially if it's someone you trust or if it's someone in leadership. And when it keeps happening back to back, you start to think, well, maybe they're right, right? Because they are in leadership or they are my employer. Like, and then it really does. And then, and then when you ask them about it, like when you're brave enough to ask them about it or say, what did you mean by that? And they become offended and you have to go back into that workplace or back in that relationship. And it that takes, that's emotional exhaustion. Like that's emotionally exhausting to have to keep, because you don't want to break the relationship tie, right? Like you want to be able to move through it with the person, but if they're not getting it because they don't have adequate diversity and inclusion training, like what do you do, right? Like, do you go to the board? Do you, do you, like, how do you implement it without getting fired? Because there are so many blogs out there now of people of color who stood up to it and got fired and had to go find new jobs because they called out these microaggressions that literally sent them to therapy. And normally they're not working at a job that provides insurance. Or, or pays for therapy. So it's like, now you're coming out of your own pocket to pay for something that could have been avoided if that person took an anti-racism training or was comfortable being uncomfortable with your feedback, you know? Yeah, and that's a really good point you bring up that I think we covered a little bit in the beginning as well. But, you know, as BIPOC individuals, because, you know, just general systemic oppression and racism and redline communities and everything of the like there are a lot of things that work against BIPOC individuals which unfortunately often ends up in a lot of these marginalized groups working at a job that just doesn't provide insurance so not only is racism affecting their economic status social status class mobility which then therefore affects their mental health it goes right back into that cycle because they then have to pay for their own insurance or medication, and then that also affects their economic status as well, and it's just full, it's full circle. And it can like, go even further, right? As a, as a biracial person, my mother, so my dad is, was black and my mom is white. My mom had a lot of underlying bias against black people and black men in general because my dad was absent for whatever reason i mean back then um their parent my families did not support it there was my mother's mother my grandmother she did not support biracial relationships and i think there were some people in my dad's family that did not support it either so she had a lot of trauma um and she she says things sometimes that are just not okay. Like when her mother died, this is how deep it goes, like the, how deep the trauma and how deep the hurt and in generations, right? When her mother died, she felt the need in her heart to apologize to her mother for having children with a black man. Hmm. And I know she didn't, she didn't, she was in her own pain and her own grieving. And I don't think she would have said that to me in other circumstances, but she did say that to me. And 
it really does. I mean, now I'm so much more aware of how deeply rooted racism is in our country. Mm-hmm. And I'm really sorry to hear that. And like, unfortunately, that's also something that happens a lot. Internalized racism is so prominent in contributing to internal struggles with identity as well. And it goes for your own personal re- internalized racism and also the subconscious internalized racism from those around you that you love as well. And I think people forget that this part of the deal is also a significant contributor to a BIPOC or POC youth mental health. And I'm glad that we're bringing that up. Everybody's on their own journey. I remember growing up and having this whole weird thing about my hair. I had really long curly hair, um, but I wanted straight hair because I thought that was a standard of beauty that I didn't have, you know, like I wanted light hair or straight hair. Um, So I was begging my mom. give me straight hair or cut my hair because people are always, she didn't know how to care for my hair either. Um, That was one thing. People were always commenting on it, calling me Curly Sue um, or saying it was nappy. So one day I just went in the bathroom and just cut my hair off all the way up to my ears because I just thought it was so ugly. And um, I didn't like people commenting on it. And I didn't have anyone in my life to, like, reinforce that it was pretty. Like, I was punished for cutting it. Like, yeah. So I just want anybody with curly hair, especially (laughs) black and brown girls. Like, it's beautiful the way it is. Like, rock rock your curls, you know? But it took a long time to to love my hair. I don't even own a hair straightener anymore. Like... (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. These are factors you can't like and shouldn't, to be clear, have to change or feel like you have to change. And I know that as a kid, especially like personally, um, I had a decent amount of internalized racism and just a lot of like, oh, I want to be like other kids. You know, I don't fit in. And for me personally, although I've never experienced anything like that to that degree, which obviously I am so lucky for, something that did happen was a situation with a white male teacher I had. Um, I had written actually like a paper in elementary about racism and my experiences with it and I had handed it in and I actually got a couple of marks off and so me being me I went up and asked what I could improve on you know what was wrong with it etc and the reason that I actually got a couple of marks taken off was literally because he a white male teacher didn't think that there was any racism in our predominantly white community because he a white male teacher said that he didn't see any of it therefore it didn't exist therefore he took a couple of marks off because I wasn't accurate and I was so shocked and I felt so uncomfortable like what and you know like as a kid you soak everything in and that memory is still clear as day in my mind definitely yeah colonization and socialization is such a real thing like but yeah that I heard you referencing um internalized racism I, I think a little bit and that's really when society teaches you that something is right right So I think that I, me wanting straight hair was me internalizing racism. Mm -hmm. And um, I know before I was aware and I had my own anti-racism training and I I learned about internalized racism, there was something in me that was like, oh my gosh, I need to go back and apologize to some people because Mm. I said some things that were rude, especially to like my dark skin friends. Uh, mm-hmm. I, yeah, there was just a, like some people that clicked in my mind where I knew that I'd said something once and they didn't say nothing. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I know it was wrong now. And I can heal that relationship. And maybe they didn't even notice, but I, I noticed. Mm. And colonization of socialization is so, so, so important when talking about identity as BIPOC and POC youth as well. Because, you know, like a lot of things that are part of the culture of all these marginalized groups are just colonized. And, you know, sometimes it's not as noticeable on the surface, but it still chips away at these youth uh, slowly inside. And so many parts of their culture, um, you know, whether they're part of whichever marginalized group, um, are being so colonized that they're basically left with nothing. Like, for example, AVE is being deemed as the Gen Z language or the new slang on TikTok, but it's literally not. It's not. It's Black people culture, and it's being taken away from them, and that's obviously just not right. Um, and, like, another example of these issues um, is also, like, the term white passing. I guess, like, a better word for this would be appropriation, cultural appropriation. But um, a lot of talk recently has been about is it really white passing if white individuals just look more Asian, more black, more brown, day by day, you know? Um, they, like, they're taking these features, using it through makeup, plastic surgery, etc. And, you know, that's really just a tip of that iceberg. And there's just so, so, so many issues swimming right under the surface. And it really does play a huge role in how BIPOC and POC youth go about their mental health and also what really affects them. Yeah, so yoga was actually started by people of color. And if you Google, like yoga anything you're not going to get a lot of people that show up on you in the google search a lot of people of color showing up on google search because it's been so whitewashed Mm -hmm. yeah and if you even go back like further there's something called comedic yoga which is comes out of kemet in egypt and there's yoga postures on the walls of the pyramid showing people indigenous people of color of Africa doing yoga movement. So yeah, you're totally right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also like the difference in culture. I know that for like a lot of um, peers and also myself when I was growing up, um, we would tend to be embarrassed of our parents because they would talk loudly. Um, And because, you know, we lived in like predominantly white area um that just wasn't kind of like how they did things there even though for us that was just kind of part of our culture and like looking back you know um i know that for me and for a lot of people um that i know you know what we hate that we were embarrassed and we know that we definitely shouldn't have been because that's just a part of our culture you know just talking loudly is a part of our culture but um as a kid like really all kids just want to fit in and you know this really isn't racism it's really just difference in culture and I think that's a good point to bring up as well for me personally I study in a predominantly East Asian community now so like a lot of things that I now understand as normal and perfectly valid if I'm being completely honest I don't know if my understanding of these topics would have come so easily if I was still studying in a predominantly white community which I was when I was younger um, and I think that I definitely would have struggled a whole lot more with my identity if I was still studying there and that's something if anything that really makes me personally um and I'm sure others start thinking it's hard to feel like it's hard to know where you fit in so even from my own Grand Rapids culture I've lived in Grand Rapids my whole life Grand Rapids Michigan and this culture is beer drinking Christian reformed white married young um yeah so when you meet people here like the first questions i ask what church do you go to who are you married to and where do you work and it's just so like ugh. like and i'm a biracial woman of color single mom 
working for myself. And I often feel like I don't fit in here. I really, really do. And it wasn't until I realized that I had to find, I had to really be intentional about connecting with other people of color in my city because it wasn't happening when I went downtown or to the bar or, or not like, you know, mm-hmm. um, in the workplace, it, I really, my friends and I had to start a Facebook group called women of color creatives. And we started brunching together once a week. And I just, that's where I found my community. Really. That's where I found my tribe. That's where I found connections. Um, and that's where I didn't have to talk about, I didn't have to explain my pain with, living in this culture they already knew and if we talked about it i was super affirmed right away mm-hmm. and super yeah yeah a huge part of it is definitely identity and again it really is just difference in culture you know that like there are so many different nuances that come with being around people that aren't like you or are like you and so many different factors and i think that a lot of bipoc and poc youth are affected by that so it's no wonder that bipoc youth and poc youth are struggling with mental illness also struggle with that as well and this applies in class too um you know uh like for example like in history class if say the topic is slavery um and that one black kid is stared at because they're expected to talk about it and in a way educate those around them even if it's not their job too that's a point to bring up as well it's not up to that one youth in care or that one employee of color at your organization to hold your culture and workplace accountable or classroom accountable. Like oftentimes the generational trauma or even like the current trauma that BIPOC and POC youth gain is super significant in how BIPOC um, and POC youth, of course, and mental health play out because these are emotions, emotional grief that plays such a huge part in your own journey and growth and life, to be honest. And I know from my own experiences, from my first anti-racism training, and I learned about like the thought process of the Catholic Church going over to Africa and using slavery as an economic gain, and then seeing how racism never ended, it just transformed into systems play. And then seeing people that I looked up to, a part of the Black Panther movement being murdered, and there being no justice, and then seeing Brianna Taylor being murdered and seeing there's no justice and just seeing how history is repeating itself in different ways. You know, it took me from my first anti-racism training, probably a calendar year to process those feelings and to, um, to show up and be kind and talk about it. I was very, very angry and very hurt and then learn and then in that time my mother said what she said um about her her pain and her internalized racism her actions with her mother um yeah it was very hard and i think that people got to keep that in mind when you are doing anti-racism work when you are working on your own internalized racism when you are speaking up on this that there is going to be a lot of emotional baggage a lot of healing and letting go and grief and knowing the truth you know mm-hmm. just give yourself grace and give others grace but be ready to walk away from some people who aren't in the space yet to receive what you're telling them yeah definitely because at the end of the day too you have to put yourself first right okay um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think like a lot of youth, um, and this goes for like all youth, like everybody's super headstrong as a youth, you know? Um, and I feel like it's a hard lesson to learn, but headstrong only gets you so far. And sometimes it gets you in places that are like worse than where you started. And so you really have to, like like you said, learn to just kind of step back sometimes um, and definitely just again, put yourself first. And that's definitely something to consider as well. Um, to end of that note, though, on behalf of Justice for Society in Conversation, we're again super grateful for the time that you've given us. For our listeners, where can they find you? Again, uh, my business is Resilient Roots Wellness. I have a gratitude journal to help people that have experienced trauma, um, help them let go of any negative self-talk or negative narratives that they might have grown up, grown up with, um, and just help them take control of their lives by repeating positive I am affirmations, like I'm brave, I'm strong, I'm worthy, um, so they can show up as, them, as their best self, as they're learning and growing. And again, you can find me at resilientrootsgr.com and then resilientroots.wellness at Instagram and Facebook. Amazing. And with that, thank you all for listening. And of course, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Justice for Society Magazine. And we hope you all tune in next time. Thank you.